Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 63. I don't normally do this because we've been standing the whole time. We've been singing, but we are heading into some very high and holy ground. So let me ask you to please stand as I read these particular passages this week and I guess next uh, over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to read through 23, 25 this morning, and then we'll turn to the Lord in prayer. But I'll begin in Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him to prophesy, Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the scribes, or the crowds rather, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was, in, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but for whom they had asked, he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the words that we just read. 
Lord, it is staggering to realize the price that was paid for our souls. And when we truly come to terms with the price, we realize that we are certainly not worthy of the life that was given in our place. Father, we praise you for this Son, the Son, the Son of God, the Eternal One, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that in your wisdom, in your astounding plan of deliverance, you sent the treasured one. You sent God who became fully man and lived a perfect and sinless life. And he was declared even by the godless as being not guilty. Yet he must die for the sins of his people. And we praise you for that. We praise you for this love story that we just read. And Father, I pray that this story would radically shape who we are as the children of God. I pray that we would be enamored with the love that we've known and the grace that we've been shown. So Father, in these next few minutes, I pray that you would give me words for my mouth to speak that are faithful to these precious passages and give us all ears to hear that we might joyfully receive the words that have delivered us from death and have made us alive in Christ and help us to rejoice in them and walk and live in light of them. Father, we praise you and we ask for all these things in the precious name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. When you think about these words, there's two things going on here. One, they're so very painful. They are painful to read at the price that was paid and the suffering that our Lord went through. But at the same time, these are words that bring us great joy because without these words, without this true story, we have no hope for deliverance. There is no one else who can save us other than the Son of God who became man. And so we understand that if He doesn't do this, if He doesn't submit Himself to go through this, you and I have no hope whatsoever of deliverance. And so we read the words with sorrow because we know that it is our sin for which He dies. And we read these words with joy because it is His death that delivers us and gives us life. And these words, or this story rather, before us was certainly not unplanned or unprepared. And it certainly was described for us before they ever took place by many of the prophets, but especially by Isaiah. He gives us so much in description before these words ever come to pass. Isaiah says in fifty-two fourteen, Just as many were astonished at you, my people so... His appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Our Lord was disfigured in his body because he was so brutally beaten and he was done so for our sins. Isaiah says in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was despised and forsaken. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was like one whom, whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And all of that was necessary for our deliverance. Isaiah goes on to say that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away and this too was necessary Isaiah says the Lord was pleased to crush him. And this was necessary for our salvation. So when we read these words, these are, these are precious words. These are a treasure to us. They break our hearts, like I say, and we weep. And then as tears roll down our face, we say over and over and over, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. 
that you sent someone to stand in my place. Every time I read these words, I fall under the conviction that these words don't really need my words. To do justice to these words, we just simply need to read them. But I also understand that my words are necessary because our minds and our hearts are cold and they have to be stimulated to reflect on the glory of these passages. If I don't give you these words, you'll soon forget. Or if I don't give you my words, you'll soon forget these words because you'll go right back out the door and forget to reflect on the glory and the suffering that the Lord Jesus did for us. And so we have to spend time reflecting on and considering these passages. His faithfulness to walk, and he did so, as Isaiah described, in, in silence, which is remarkable to me because I'll show you in just a few minutes as we have time. The religious leaders were in a panic. I mentioned that twice. It was urgent for them. They were just scurrying about trying to get a conviction in order that he might die before the Sabbath. And yet Jesus quietly, confidently, calmly walks in the will of the Father, knowing that every step has been foreordained for the deliverance of the people of God. It's striking to see the difference that's going on in all these passages between Jesus and these people. Now we cannot forget, and I barely mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that our Lord prepared for these moments through prayer. Get a hold of that. God prepared to face the wrath of God the Father by bending the knee in prayer. Look at verse 41, back at chapter 22, verse 41. It says about our Lord, He redrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. I think it's four times that we've talked about as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke where we, quote unquote, catch Jesus in prayer. And here we do it again right before he goes to the cross. And certainly there are more times, if you go and add up all the times that Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray or commanding them to pray, you find prayer all throughout the book of Luke. In fact, the story of Jesus begins, or shortly after it begins, Luke records these words where it says that Jesus would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. And so that's what we see our Lord doing as He prepares for the spiritual trauma, not the physical trauma, but the spiritual trauma as He takes on Himself the sins of the world. The sinless man is going to take on the sins of the people of God and carry them to face the wrath of God. And the words that are described for his, his, his heart there is in verse 44. Look at 22, verse 44. And being in agony. God, the Son of God, was in agony as he prayed to prepare himself for Calvary. He goes on to say his sweat became like, like, like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is the most terrible moment and the most powerful moment of prayer that you will find on the pages of Scripture. The Son pleading with the Father about what He was about to face. And so we always come back to this thought. My goodness, if it was necessary for the Son of God to bend the knee, how much more necessary is it for us to bend the knee on every single occasion. And I sat there and I thought about that a great while. You know, we should have bent the knee, and certainly we did as soon as service begins. I kind of bend the knee for us. But I hope that you bend the knee before you show up on Sunday morning, whether that's Saturday night or Sunday morning, to prepare your own heart for standing in the presence of God. Now, there is no condemnation for you for those who are in Christ. You can stand before the Father. The way has been made for you. He rejoices in for you to come into His presence and pray for Him. Yet you come as a congregation to gather, if you will, at the feet of our Lord. Should we not pray to prepare our hearts for such a time as that? Are we going to come flippantly into the presence of God corporately? Are we going to remember that our feet are dirty from walking all week 
in sin and in the world. And we take the time to cleanse our own souls as we come before the one that is altogether holy and righteous. It's not just Sunday morning, right? It's Monday morning that we would continue in steadfast faithfulness that this display of worship on Sunday morning doesn't vanish on Monday morning, that we continue to walk in an attitude of worship as we go. Heading into difficulty, should we not bend the knee that we might be found faithful in the midst of trials? And how about this, that we might pray that as we go through difficulty, once we get to the other side, it wouldn't be wasted. That we will have learned more about God and what it means to be faithful. That we would pray, not just deliverance from difficulty, but that on the other side of it, we might know God more. And that we might be made more like Him. That requires prayer. We ought to pray because we're so busy. If there's one thing that you all consistently say every time I ask you, how can we pray for you? Every single one of you say, well, I'm just so busy. And I certainly don't argue with that. But it was said of Martin Luther, the busier his day, the earlier he got up that morning, not in order to get more done, but in order that he might spend even more time in prayer preparing for that crazy busy day. We've got to discipline ourselves as busy people to spend more time in prayer so that God might find us faithful in every moment of every day. I said this a couple of weeks ago. We should pray before we engage in conversation with anyone that our lips and our words might be pleasing to the Lord. We should pray in our interactions that the presence and the person of Jesus might be seen in us as we interact with other people wherever we are. And all of that requires prayer. We need to learn to grow up and stop running on autopilot and start running on prayer and dependence. Paul tells us more than once that we ought to pray about everything. And so I can't think of an opportunity that's going to happen in your life that does not require prayer. I can't think of one moment in your life that will take place that does not require prayer. It's just whether or not we'll do so. Now we see the painful reality. Jesus is thoroughly prepared, but the disciples are totally unprepared. And so they walk in confusion and confusion leads to violence. Look at 49 and 51. When they come into the guard to arrest Jesus and Judas betrays him with a kiss, Verse 49, those who are around Jesus saw what would follow, and they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Now this account is in all four Gospels, and there's a reason for that. It's only John that tells us who actually drew the sword and and cut the servant's ear off, which was the apostle Peter who did that. But the reason that all four Gospels give us this account is because the Gospel writers want us to clearly understand that this had nothing to do with what Jesus was about. He was not here to physically overthrow any earthly kingdom. He came to demonstrate authority and power, but it was not over the physical, it was over the spiritual His kingdom was spiritual, and so these little altercations had nothing to do with him. He did not come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin and death and Satan, and those are spiritual things. So Jesus allows him to be, or allows himself rather, to be captured and carried away. And then violence against him takes place, and there's no one there to defend him. Notice verse 63. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him, and they blindfolded him and kept saying, Prophesy, who struck you? Other gospel writers record other things. Remember, Luke is our summary writer. He's just moving the story along, so he draws everything into summary. But other gospel writers talk about how they punched him, they spit upon him, They pulled out his beard. 
And they blindfolded him and said this to God as they hit him. Who just hit you? Do you know? Can you imagine? Jesus is standing there and he knew every man that was in there. He knew them before creation. He knit them together in their mother's womb. Their life he held in the palm of his hand. And man is so foolish as to strike God in the face and say, can you tell me who just hit you? That's where depravity takes us. That's how foolish sin is in rebellion against God. And yet in absolute silence, Jesus understands the plan of the Father and the part that this is playing. And He doesn't draw back. He doesn't answer in revile. He entrusts Himself to His God who judges justly. And all of this takes place. The silence of Jesus is absolutely amazing to me in all of this. But again, that's exactly what Isaiah said He would do. Now, the greatest question as far as the religious leaders are concerned comes in verse 67. Notice the question here. If you are the Christ, tell us. And that's always been the grand question for the Jews. They've always wanted to know who the Christ was, the one who God would send to deliver them, right? And if Jesus had come as a king... They would have gladly received him if he had been an earthly king. David had prophesied that one would come and deliver them, and so it was certainly not a crime for Jesus to claim to be the Christ. All they wanted to see was an army, some swords, and an attitude about Jesus that was very rebellious against the government. They wanted to see someone who was anti-government that would rise up and they would gladly follow in behind him. But he had never showed any sign, any inclination that he was that type of king. Never once did he sign up a military man or a soldier to follow after him. He just wasn't made for those sort of things. And so when you get to this question, of course, they will find out they really don't care about the answer. But here's the heart of what was going on, they didn't like who he was and they didn't like what he was doing. They understood his claim. They just despised the way that he was going about what they wanted him to do. And that takes us all the way back to Exodus 32 and I, I thought about this this week. Moses is up on the mountain with God receiving the law and the entire congregation of people are at the foot of the mountain. And Moses writes these words about them. God saying, They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed it, saying, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Stephen would say in Acts 7, They wanted this new God to lead them back to Egypt. That's always in our hearts, and we always have to remember that. Jesus of the Bible is offensive if you study him enough. And so you're left with the one of two choices. Am I going to repent and realize that the Jesus of the Bible is the one to be worshipped and praised, or am I going to recreate Jesus after my own image? And so they take God and they beat God because they don't like God. They want their own type of God, and they're willing to kill the one who came as the Son of God. That's one thought that's going on here. Secondly, and, and very similarly to it, they could not escape physical reality for a greater spiritual reality. They just simply could not get around that. They could not see the horizon of the glory of God because of what was immediately in front of them. And as believers, you need to understand that you've been called to that very thing to lift up your eyes. We're not called, as they always say, especially on sports television, to live in the moment. <laughs> no, we're, we're called to live in those coming days when our Messiah comes again. We're supposed to live now like we will then. We live in that moment. 
And that's why we walk in holiness and righteousness, because certainly we will in those days. And so we do so in these days. So you have to constantly remind yourself in the morning and pray that God might lift up your eyes. Or you'll constantly be overwhelmed by your circumstances. You'll constantly be whining and complaining and trying to manipulate everything in front of you rather than like Jesus, quietly trusting in the Father and walking faithfully down the road, knowing that at just the other next turn, rather, Jesus will appear and take us to be with him. So there's two things. They didn't like the God who was. They couldn't get past the physical. But thirdly, I offer you this, even though that was their perspective, their perspective is better than ours. Because at least they understood that they needed a Messiah and a deliverer. During release time this week, I was trying to convince the, the kids that the greatest gift, the greatest need of your life from the time that you're born until the time that you die, your greatest need is for someone to save you. And we live in a world that is unconvinced and uncaring about that reality. They do not realize their desperate need for someone to deliver them from sin and death. And so not only do we have to tell them about Jesus, we have to begin by telling them about their need for a Savior and the fact that as of right now, they stand condemned before God. So at least, even though they got so much wrong in these moments, at least they knew and they constantly waited and watched for a deliverer. And not only do we not want a deliverer, we want to be our own gods and deliver ourselves. So Jesus really points to the whole problem here, the heart of the problem. And it's in, notice with me in 67 and 68, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. That's the problem. That has always been the greatest problem with our fallen nature and our depravity. If I tell you, you will not believe. You know, the argument we talked about this Wednesday night about how much Adam's fall affected us. What all did it affect? And the majority of the people out there believe that there's enough left for us to come to a logical conclusion about Jesus and receive him on our own. Most Christians... Believe that. But I would submit to you after we've studied Jude and gone through dealing with Satan's effect on our minds and all this, I'm even more convinced than I've ever been before. If it affected anything, it desperately affected our mind. In fact, it put our mind to death. Remember what Ephesians says? But you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let me tell you about what part about you was dead. Anything and everything Godward was dead, including your mind. In other words, as we said so often, it takes so much more than human words and the preaching of Christ to convince someone to believe upon the Lord Jesus. It takes a radical and powerful move of the Holy Spirit to raise the dead. And that's why Jesus can say these words, because if you go back through all of this, Right? Why would they not believe? How could they not believe? You think about all that he's he had done by this moment. He walked in absolute crowded places and healed everyone. His teaching was like nothing they'd ever heard. They had heard stories. Certainly all of them didn't see Jesus walking on water or stilling the storm with his spoken word. But they had heard those stories. And there were fifteen to 20,000 people who had been fed by Jesus with a boy's sack lunch. How could you not believe? And then he had raised the dead, Lazarus, very publicly. How could you not believe? And there, the answer to that is because your mind is dead. Your mind is dead apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God to turn on your mind to the wonder and the beauty and the glory of Christ. That's why they could not believe. 
And I worried when we talked a few Wednesday nights ago about this, because I was, I, I know all of you were under conviction, I was under conviction myself, about how painfully simple it is to hear God's word and obey. And I really hammered that. I, I hammered that till I got home and I worried about how simple I made it because I know it crushed your soul. But even though it's, the math is so simple, it's powerfully difficult to obey what we hear from God's Word. And the reason for that is because we are convinced of our own minds and we have Satan in the world pressing against us, pushing us away from simply going, I believe what you say, Lord. And I'll walk in it. It's really as simple as an exhale to walk in obedience to God. Whether that's love or forgiveness or turning away from some moral problem, it's as simple as an exhale to do. But it's so difficult that it takes the Spirit of God within us to be able to exhale and do. It reminds me of I went to my cousin's funeral this week. Matthew 18. Let me turn there quickly. I'll tell you what, you go with me there. Maybe I can find it. This may be a waste of time, but I think it was in Matthew 18. Yes, it is. Turn with me to Matthew 18. And I'm, I'm certain he did it intentionally because he misquoted the verse. He left or he changed a very significant word in Matthew 18 at the, my cousin's funeral. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 18.2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's that exhale that we see in the life of children. Now he misquoted it intentionally. He said, you will not understand the kingdom of heaven. And I'm like, well, I know it doesn't say that. And then he came back to it again. He said, you will not understand the kingdom of heaven. Listen, no, it says you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. And the metaphor, the illustration is someone who will exhale and receive what they are told. And we try to impress that upon the hearts of our kids. And if you're a wise parent, you do that. You teach them to do what you say. And of course, we all beg God for that humble child, right? That just so willingly, yes, daddy. It's what we want. We don't usually get that, but that's what we want. You do realize that's what our Heavenly Father wants out of you. Yes, Dad. Yes, you're right. I'm wrong. I repent. I'll do it. It's really that simple, but it's powerfully difficult to do these things. Now go back with me to the Gospel of Luke, because we come to the final straw for the religious leaders. Luke 22, verse 69. Luke 22, verse 69. Jesus says, after, if I tell you, you'll not believe. If I ask, you'll not answer. Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they say, and I don't like how ESV handles this. They don't really, well, it's in the form of a question, but it comes across as this. If you're going to say that from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God, then that makes you the Son of God. And Jesus responds, you said it right. They know how to do the math. They understand the claim about Him being seated at the right hand. In fact, they were very familiar with the prophecy of Daniel, if you're taking notes, Daniel 7, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read it to you. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions. He was having a vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. 
And to Him, which is the Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and all the nations and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, the right hand of the Father was, that was it. That is it. That is the place of power. That is the place of acceptance. That is the place of authority. And that gives us a picture of their quality with God because he's seated at the right hand of God. And that was enough for them. In fact, you see their response in verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. This was it. This was such an exclusive statement to make. This shut down all questioning about what Jesus was claiming to be. And this was the statement that caused them to grab him up and cart him off to Pilate because only Pilate could put him to death. And what he just said, he deserves to die. And they were in agreement. As I said, it's an exclusive statement. It's like John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man may come to the Father but through me. That is offensive if you say it and explain it. That excludes all other ways to God. And yet there's a significant portion of Christians that believe that there's many ways to God. Many say things like, well, they may worship Buddha, but they just don't realize that it's Jesus that gets them to God. They're sincere in their worship, but Jesus will build the bridge for them on their behalf. Now that's... That's foolish. That's a lie. There is no bridge to God other than the one that Jesus Christ has built. And you only walk across that bridge with a bended knee, worshiping the one who built the bridge. It is Christ our King. There is no other way. And despite what some say, even in the primitive church around us, the gospel must be preached because the name of Christ must be heard and men must repent from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no other name under heaven given to men, period, by which you must be saved. And so when Jesus said, no, but now the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the Father, that was the statement which turned them. Now, let me tell you something. We don't live in a country that recognizes that Jesus. We live in a country that's recreated Jesus, just like the religious leaders were on and trying to recreate their God in this moment. We live in a place that uses the name Jesus, but it's not the Jesus that we find in the Bible because the Jesus we find in the Bible excludes them from the kingdom of God unless they repent and believe. This is why they hated Jesus so much. Again, I take you back. What, what did Jesus ever do to be hated? I mean, never once did he strike a man. Never once did he curse a man. Never once did he demand his own way. Never once did he lash out in any sort of violence. Never once did he speak in a disrespectful way. Never once was he arrogant, never once did he display any kind of attitude that would create hatred in your heart, yet he was hated. Why? Because of what he says here. They understood that his claims were serious, that they demanded submission because he was promoting authority. Our country does not understand that. They've made Jesus into someone who loves and accepts everyone just the way that they are. And that is not the truth. He died because of how we are. He doesn't turn around and accept us to continue on our own way like we are. That's foolish. 
And so when Jesus makes these claims, very few people stand up today and actually make these claims because if we would be consistent from the pulpit to make these claims that it is Jesus Christ alone seated at the right hand of God and there is no other way to heaven other than Jesus Christ, if we make those claims, this country wouldn't love God so much. We would certainly take it off our license plate because that God is morally offensive and corrupt. He doesn't love Those who continue in their own way, no. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 5 says he hates them. He loves us. He died for us. But in order to come to him, we come with a broken and repentant heart. We come because we need forgiveness for our way. We don't come for fun. We have to be so much more faithful in making claims that box people into Christ alone or nothing. And if we'd do this, they would hate him. Now the political maneuvering begins. Notice verse 1. Then the whole company of them rose and brought him before Pilate. Again, I say Jesus had to be brought before Pilate because only Pilate could take his life. And so Pilate is about to play his role well in the death of Christ. It's interesting when you read church history about Pilate, Jewish, not Christian, Jewish historians and philosophers during that day described Pilate as cruel and stubborn. He was the fifth governor of this region, and he reigned from 26 to 36. So if you want a a true calendar about the years in which Jesus died on Calvary, it was sometime between 26 and 36. Pilate hated the Jews. He hated their customs. And if you're going to hate the people that you govern... That's never going to end well. Pilate did three very foolish things, in fact, that cost him his job. One of those things, he set up a bust of Emperor Emperor Tiberius, and that greatly offended the Jews because they had banned all images. And yet their governor sets up this large image for them to worship an emperor. And so the Jews had this five days of a nonviolent protest, and Pilate finally got so tired of it, He ordered his military to kill the protesters. And this is when the Jews bared their throats, welcoming death rather than transgression of the law. They literally bared the throat for Pilate to cut their throat rather than for them to worship an image. And so Pilate had to back down. You know how political leaders get when they have to back down. Another time, Pilate used temple treasury money to build the aqueduct, and the Jews protested that because that was a public works issue. And again, this argument got so intense that Pilate lost his cool and killed a large number of Jews arguing about his use of temple money. And then another time, and we read about this actually in Luke 13.1, Pilate killed some Galileans who brought offerings to Jerusalem, and Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices. Pilate was no hero. Pilate was a foolish and spineless leader who only wanted authority, and he exercised his power when he could. I think it's in the second century, the false gospels, like, for instance, the gospel of Peter and all that foolishness that took place in the second century, they refer to Pilate as brother Pilate. Pilate was not a brother. Pilate played his role in the death of Christ. But notice the accusations that begin in verse 2, how foolish they are. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. There's actually three here, so let me stop on misleading the nation. Never once. Never once. How could he mislead the nation when he came to fulfill the law and explain the law to the people? No, he was promoting the nation by explaining to them the laws of God. He was not misleading the nation. Notice what else he says. Verse 2, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That literally means to pay taxes to Caesar. That was an absolute unfounded lie. Jesus was the only one that ever promoted paying taxes to Caesar. Remember, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The rest of the Jewish nations were just like us. They hated paying taxes. And Jesus had commanded them, no, you need to pay taxes. And so they just ball-faced lie trying to get Caesar stirred up against Jesus. And then notice what they say in the last part of verse 2, saying that he himself is Christ. Notice what they say, a king. 
Now they know the Christ to be their king, but they're not king on the word Christ. They're king on the word king because if they can convince Pilate that Jesus is trying to set himself up as a king, then he would be against Rome. And again, Pilate would be stirred up to put Jesus to the death. But Pilate understands he's not a fool when it comes to legal matters. Notice what he says in verse 3. Pilate then asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate probably said that with great sarcasm. He probably smirked and laughed when he said it because he knew that the Jews despised Jesus. And if he was any king at all, he was the king of the Jews. So again, all this political maneuvering going on, Pilate trying to stir up the Jews, the Jews trying to stir up Pilate, they desperately trying to control these circumstances, and yet Christ continues quietly and calmly walking in the way prepared by his Father. Now verse 5, Pilate begins his political maneuvering. He sends him to Herod. Notice verse 5. They were urgent. Of course they were. He stirs up the people, they say, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether or not the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sort of miracle or sign done by him. So Herod questioned him at length, but he had made no answer, of course. He was quiet. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt. They mocked him. They put on splendid clothing, and then they sent him right back to Pilate. And then Herod and Pilate became friends that day. The reason Pilate sent Jesus to Herod was a political maneuver because Herod had Jewish heritage. In Pilate's mind, if I can get a Jew, I'll put quotation marks around that, if I can get a Jew to say Jesus is not guilty, then maybe these Jews that are so riled up will back down off of this thing and I won't have to put this man to death. He was literally appealing to a conservative to get his conservative views in order that the Jewish conservatives would back down and not put Jesus to death. It was all just a political maneuver. Now this Herod is... Man, he, he's, he's something else. His dad was the one that was trying to put Jesus to death when he was born. But Herod the Great had passed away and he had left his kingdom. He divided it up into four parts and left it to four sons. That's why they're called tetrarchs, one quarter. And so this Herod was a tetrarch. He had one quarter of the kingdom. He was nicknamed Antipas, I think it was. And here's the deal about this guy. He's got a long history with Jesus as well. Because Herod went to, went to visit his brother Philip, who was also a tetrarch. And when he got to Philip's house, he saw Philip's wife, Herodias, and he fell in love with her. And so Josephus says they planned secretly to get married. And so John the Baptist comes onto the scene in Luke 3, preaching repentance and faith. And Herod has just gone through a national scandal by stealing his brother's wife, and if you know John the Baptist, he's not going to back down from that. And so he lifts a finger in Herod's face and says, oh, you sinned against God. It is wrong for you. It is wrong for you to take your brother's wife. You see, we think we're supposed to just correct Christians. No, we're supposed to lift the finger to the world and say, this is wrong. This is against God. This is rebellion. Of course, you know what Herod does. He puts John into prison, but he's terrified. He knows John is a righteous man. In fact, Mark tells us that he often wanted to hear John preach. This guy's messed up in the head. He was ticked off at him. He had the power to put him in prison, yet he would call for him and ask him to preach to him. So Herod's plan was never to kill John, but then you remember Herodias, and if you get an evil woman stirred up, no holds barred. And so Herodias comes up with this plan with her daughter, the daughter to dance in front of Herod, Herod to make that grand statement, I'll give you anything you want for that dance. And the plan was, well, then I want the head of John the Baptist. And so Herod doesn't want to be embarrassed. And so he takes his head off. That's this Herod. 
And so he stands before Jesus in verse 8 like a fool wanting to see a sign. I got to tell you, this is what lost people do. They want to be amazed. They want to see a sign. And frankly, few things frustrate me more. You know, if something miraculous were to happen, and certainly God does the miraculous, if something were to happen among us so extraordinary that the community found out and they wanted to be here next Sunday morning, I would probably just let you guys in and lock the door. Because people who just want to see a sign don't understand that they need a relationship. They just want to be amazed. They just want to be impressed. And there's so many in the charismatic church that mislead the church by making such a big deal out of the miraculous thing. They just want to see a sign. And if there's no sign, then Jesus didn't show up. Where the people of God are gathered, where one child of God is gathered, the Lord is present. And when we preach the word of God, uh, the Lord is present. And when we hear the word of God, the Lord is present and active among us. So this is Herod. He's just like the world. There's no difference in him. But at least he had enough sense to realize that he was not guilty. So notice verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, I did not find any guilt in this man, any, any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done. And then notice the political maneuver. I will therefore punish and release him. We're like, what? You just declared the man to be not guilty and you're going to punish him? Why? Because I'm trying to appease the crowds. I'm just trying to maintain my political office. And there's a lot of these people that want him dead. So the best thing that I can think to do is I'll beat him half to death and then hand him over and he can go about his merry way. We won't have to put him to death because this man is innocent. You see, this is the spineless foolishness of the world. If he's innocent, he's innocent. But three times here and we have this passage. Look back up at verse 4. Very quickly, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now run down to verse 14. After examining him before you, I did not find this man guilty on any of your charges. Look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, why? You want me to crucify, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And Luke wants you to see it. He even says the word three. He's absolutely, without question, positively innocent in regard to everything. Now, we live in a funny world. We have those that like to act like they're innocent and claim innocence, but we all know they're not innocent. There's nothing about them that is innocent. There's nothing about a human being that's innocent. So there's no need in us acting like victims and declaring some kind of innocence. We've all committed sin and rebellion against God. That deserves death. No one among us is innocent. But now this one, he was innocent in every single way. He was without question, and I failed to find all the words to point to his purity. Every thought, every breath, every word, every action, every movement was pleasing to the Father. He slept in moral purity and he woke and walked in moral purity. He was righteous from beginning to end. He was pure white in the depth of his soul. But you know what? He had to be. Remember all those passages in the law concerning Leviticus, all those animals that had to be spotless or, or blameless or without blemish. It took that kind of pure animal to physically die for the law that was physically broken. It was all external. But now when we get to the Christ, physical beauty and physical perfection was not the question. 
That was not necessary because he wasn't doing physical things. What was necessary was spiritual purity because he was dying for spiritual things as our sin and rebellion against God. He was a sacrifice that was morally pure because we needed a morally pure sacrifice to to die for our moral depravity. And so in keeping with the Old Testament sacrifices, the Lord Jesus comes in absolute perfection. You've got to remember, it's absolutely abhorrent to God for the innocent to die. And yet the innocent man dies because as he was not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, you and I, if we stand before God without Christ, we are guilty, guilty, guilty. Without question, we are guilty. And so this one comes, as God says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And I can't share with you better news than this. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Please don't mistaken. There are so many out there that say Christ became the worst sinner. No. He stood in our place. He represented us. He carried our sin, but he was innocent the whole way. He died an innocent man. And therefore God raised him from the dead. But yet notice the crowds in 20 and 21, crucify, crucify, how ignorant, how ignorant they were. And this is what sin does. Sin will kill your only deliverance. Sin will destroy your only way out of sin and death. Now they were not all together. Let me point out just a few people and we're almost done. Look at verse 26. Here was one that was against it. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they were see, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. He could no longer carry it after the beating. Notice verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. There were those who weren't shouting, crucify, crucify. Look at verse 50, probably the most significant man. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Notice, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. There was one among them at least that said, every bit of this is wrong. Now, can you do that tomorrow morning? Here was one man amidst that council that mocked and tried Jesus and accused him of all these false claims. There was one that did not agree with what they were doing. And we don't know how adamant or how outspoken he was, but Scripture's clear because he had made it clear, this is wrong. And I pray that we will be those kind of believers as we walk into this ever-changing, godless world that we will be faithful to say, no, Your Jesus is not this Jesus, and your sin is worth condemnation, and unless you repent, you will be under the wrath of God. How you live and what you do is wrong. That was this kind of guy. But notice verse 25, and I'll conclude with this thought. He released, Pilate released, Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Then we come back to the plan of God, and it calms our hearts. I love how Peter puts it in Acts 2.22 when he begins to preach. Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Was man responsible in these moments? Absolutely, every step of the way. Was God sovereign in these moments? Had God predetermined this way? Absolutely, in every single way. And so we cry and we're broken because of the experiences of Christ and yet we rejoice in God for His plan has set us free from sin and death. Christ is our King. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ has died in our place and there is no condemnation for us left. There is only forgiveness and mercy and grace that will extend throughout all eternity. And I pray that you know this. I pray that you've received all of this and you've turned from your sins and you put your faith in Christ. And if you have not, all it takes is really just an exhale of faith to say this is truth and I submit my life to it. But at the same time as believers, there's so much here There's so much for us to just set our hearts to singing praises to God because He's made a way for us. He's made a way for our children that we can be reconciled to Him because of the death of His Son. Let's pray.